ready? I am ready. This is Between the Gutters. Between the Gutters. With Drew Tan sitting across from me and Albert Lamb talking right now. Hi, Drew. Hi. All right. <laughs> I never know how to start these things, man. Yeah, so I, I just thought I'd, I'd roll, i you know, give you an introduction. Thank roll you, in. You're listening to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the story within the panel. Yes, I'm still getting used to that. I'm going to keep saying that until it becomes routine. It's going to catch fire! Kind of like uh, Shunka Dunk. Yeah, Shunka, Shunka Dunka, everybody. Shunka Dunka. <laughs> Shunka Dunka. I'm still wrapping my lips around that. Yeah, we're working on uh, on swag. Catchphrase. So. Yeah. <laughs> Eat a private pick, y'all. <laughs> uh. All right. So today we are going to continue our journey down the list of the top 25 Marvel comics of all time. And just to recap, starting from number 25 and counting down, at 25 we have Avengers and New Avengers by Jonathan Hickman, 24, Howard the Duck by Steve Gerber and Gene Colan, 23, Punisher Max by Garth Ennis, 22, Omega the Unknown by Jonathan Lethem and Pharrell Dalrymple, 21, The Ultimates 1 and 2 by Mark Miller and Brian Hitch. Number 20, Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Bagley, and Stuart Eminem. At number 19, New X-Men by Grant Morrison and a slew of artists. Number 18, Hawkeye by Matt Fraction, David Aja, Annie Wu, and some other artists. Number 17, Spider-Man, Fearful Symmetry, or Craven's Last Hunt by J.M., DeMatteis, and Mike Zeck. And... Today, we're going to start off by talking about number 16 ranked Marvel comic of all time on our list, which is... Well, before we get to it, uh, so the way that we decide which comics that we... Uh, the way in which that we decide how to rank these comics, we've uh, developed a system where we deconstruct and uh, analyze the craft of the comic, which is, you know how it was written, how it was drawn, uh, the originality of it, which is, you know, the concept of it, or, you know, its uh, execution, uh, the impact of it, which is uh, the... Lasting influence. Lasting influence on either pop culture or other comics or the medium of comics as a whole, and its ability, and the final criteria, which is its ability with, to withstand the test of time. Yep. Um, so, today... At number 16, we are doing Inhumans by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. Oh, yeah. Oh, That's yeah. The good Lee. Yeah. I mean, the only other good Lee is probably Bruce, but... Yeah. Well, what about Stanley? Oh, yeah, he's a good one, too. Uh, Dudley Moore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly who that is, but, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll assume he's a good one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about Inhumans by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee, which was published by Marvel Knights, 
the Marvel Knights imprint back in 1998. So just to briefly uh, talk about what that is, back around the late 90s, Marvel, Marvel Comics had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and they were in... They were they in were, dark times. Yeah, it was dire straits for Marvel, and, you know, there's a whole slew of reasons for that that I don't think we have time to necessarily get into right now, but basically, by the time uh, the late 90s rolled around, they figured that they had to do different stuff to raise their game, up their quality, and try to get readers back into stores and, yeah, yeah get out of their, their doldrums. Yeah. So one of the things that they did was they got uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Quesada, um, who had been pretty successful uh, comics creators doing their own stuff uh, around that time. And they got Palmiotti and Quesada to basically oversee their own little imprint, their own corner of the Marvel Universe. A sub-universe within the Marvel Universe as a whole. Right. So at this point in time, we're talking about the late 90s. Uh, the Silver Age had been around for 35 years or something like that. A lot of the Marvel comics had been getting convoluted. and They all had a lot of history, all these ongoing subplots and plots. It was basically a soap opera. Yeah. And the idea behind the Marvel Knights line <laughs> was to take a handful of characters. It started off with four comics. It started off with The Punisher, The Black Panther, Daredevil and the Inhumans. And the idea was to take these four titles and tell creator-different, yeah, creator-driven stories that weren't bogged down in excessive continuity that were basically stories that stood alone and stood on their own two feet. They found a way to breathe new life into these properties that either had just kind of gone by the wayside or, mm -hmm. you know, just people hadn't thought out of for a really long time. Um, so, the synopsis for uh, The Inhumans by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee is that it's about the... It's about a society of advanced human beings and kind of an, a look at the internal dynamics of their society and how that, that same society would actually interact with our real world. So... Yeah, essentially, it was about their their city. The Inhumans live in this uh, special advanced, advanced civilization city called Atalan, and the story was about how Atalan has come under attack by humans and Black Bolt, the king of all of the Inhumans of all these people. He has to make some difficult decisions that yeah. even his closest friends don't necessarily understand but he's got to make these decisions yeah. in order to save not only his family and his friends but, but his, his, civilization. his civilization his entire yeah. people yeah. so the first thing oh wait were you done with this yeah. yeah so the first thing that i wanted to mention about it was um i guess, I guess this would count under craft but the thing that i really found interesting in how Paul Jenkins portrayed them was uh, keep in mind that up to this point the Inhumans were a property that was created by Jack Kirby and they pretty much had the same <coughs> um, sort of status quo this entire time. They 
they've just been perceived as this advanced utopian civilization, and uh, that's just kind of how they've been written for years and years following their initial uh, inception by... Conception? Inception. I don't know. Creation by <laughs> Jack Kirby. I don't know words, y'all. <laughs> yeah, and obviously we also got to give credit to the other Lee, Stanley, yes, yes, for his role in creating the Inhumans as well. But like Albert was saying, these characters, for a long time, they were kind of like a second-rate X-Men almost yeah, because yeah. Uh, the Inhumans are also unique individuals. They're not technically human. Yeah. They all have special powers and abilities that are beyond, uh, you know, standard human traits. And they're feared by an outside world. Exactly. Yeah. So they they are kind of they do have their similarities to to the X Men. Yeah. The thing that really set them apart was always the fact that they were an entire kingdom. Yeah. Uh, a society led yeah. by Black Bolt and. He was his royal family. His royal family. Uh, Medusa, Crystal, Gorgon, Karnak, Triton, and his Black Bolt's uh, mad brother, Maximus. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing that I enjoyed, again, like back to, you know, Paul Jenkins' portrayal of it is, um, at least as far as I know, this was the, this was kind of a modern take on, on the Inhumans. Well, as I mentioned before, up to this point, we've just kind of viewed them as this advanced utopian civilization that didn't really... They, they had their problems, but it was always the same kind of problems that, you know, you have in, like, fantasy stories where, like, there's a king and he's got a mad brother that's constantly trying to overthrow him. But the thing that Paul Jenkins uh, introduces into their world is... Uh, it, the, the story starts out with this uh, process that the uh, Inhumans go through. So uh, Inhumans go through a process called terogenesis. So uh, they start out their lives as regular people or, or humans like, like us. But uh, when they get to a certain they're age... They're kind of like humans. They're not exactly humans. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they're kind of like humans. but They look just like humans. Genetically... Yeah, genetically, it's, it's they've got of, potential for... It's, it's kind of convoluted. Yeah, yeah. We'll just say they're people. Okay, let's just say that they start out... As regular people. Regular-ish people. Yeah. But the the thing about them is that they have this potential to uh, evolve, essentially. Mm -hmm. So when they get to a certain age, they go through this... Uh, what's that called? Uh, not Terogenesis? Well, I mean, they go through terogenesis, but I was going to say that they go through, like, a... Uh, ritual. They go through a ritual where they are uh, introduced to this special mist called the Terrigen Mist that changes their bodies. And they're always supposed to be evolved into their next state. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, this really like joyful moment. But the story starts out with this one girl who actually devolves into a subclass. She was a girl, right? I think it was a guy. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. So one of the... So, Basically, the story starts out with one of the characters who goes through this process, and he devolves into the subclass of worker drones that essentially like keep the city going. The alpha primitives. Yeah. So the thing about this is, it 
all of a sudden it throws into question everything that they know about their status as, you know, these superior beings. So there's there's these elements of them questioning uh, the, the righteousness of their society to, you know, exist in this monarchical system while well while acknowledging what what does that mean if we're you know um if we basically have the same potential to de-evolve as well as to become these you know this great master race i think uh one of the things about that concept um as a reader that kind of makes you think is the subtext with the whole caste system and, and slavery. Exactly, you know, exactly. It, it's, it's, I think it's something that was always a part of Inhumans, or I don't know who was the writer that first introduced that concept, but I don't think the first time it appeared was this comic. Uh, but I think that the Jenkins and Lee story took that idea and made it, made it real, uh, exactly. I mean, this, this, I mean, that's yeah, what I was trying to get the, at. The, it the, modernizes the yeah, uh, execution of yeah, it. Yeah, the, the story wasn't necessarily focused on that, but it was something that that adds uh, an extra layer as you read the story. Yeah. Because um, there are their their society may not necessarily be utopian ex per se, uh, or I don't even think that's the right use of the term per se. But I would say it in and of itself. Right? Yeah, that's true. It's they don't live in a strictly uh, utopian society in and of itself, yeah. but they live in, a, in an advanced society, and their advanced society does have things that I think would cause problems for most uh, civilized nations of, of the world. I mean, it's a lot of the questions that um, societies deal with as they advance, right? Like, you know, what do we do with institutions that are kind of relics of the past mm -hmm. and like how do we treat these new members of our society as we quote-unquote try to outgrow them like do we outgrow them do we work with yeah. them i don't even Things think like that i don't think they even try to outgrow them because their society kind of hinges on the exactly. backbreaking work that these alpha primitives as they're called have exactly. to do like they're reliant on these creatures yeah to, be the lifeblood of their society, like, even though they don't necessarily acknowledge them or recognize them. Yeah, so, knowing that backstory, uh, to begin with, that, that sort of running subtext, it gives you a sort of frame of reference to view the actual story, which is about, primarily about how Black Bolt leads his people from this invasion by man's armies to destroy Atalan. He, the character Black Bolt, uh, if you don't, if you're not too familiar with him, he's basically got a tuning fork on his head, which allows him to channel his power. His power is, uh, how do you, with, it's like a sonic scream, basically, except yeah. it's, it's more powerful than a typical sonic scream. He, he's got so much power in his voice that a merest whisper could destroy. destroy a mountain. Yeah, exactly. So... He's always this character who never speaks. He can't speak because if he talks to you, you're just going to melt. Yeah. You're going to disintegrate into yeah. bits. But it's also telling... As, as 
as something that is descriptive of his character, it, it's telling because it it essentially shows that here's a guy who just constantly has to be in control of himself. Exactly. He's someone who's always in control. Yeah. He's he's the silent king. Yeah. And the other characters around him <coughs> don't necessarily understand him. You know, yeah. he doesn't use sign language to communicate. He doesn't write notes on paper so that people can read. He rules through his queen, Medusa. She's the only one who has any sort of inkling of like how to... Yeah, she, she basically translates his yeah. directives to to other people. And there are times when even she doesn't fully understand his mind. And it's a really interesting dynamic to just imagine what it's like to live in a society where your king doesn't yeah. say anything. Yeah. You know what? That could actually be kind of a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It's like Lincoln Park. Shut up. Um Yeah, and uh, along that same note where we're talking about the craft of it and um I the thing that I enjoyed about Jenkins' run on his inhumans is he I again you can feel free to tell me if I'm there's just something that I missed, but it really feels like he built on the world building, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like just the fact that there's this advanced civilization that lives on Earth, um, like, for them to go so long without running into, like, serious turmoil against other governments, you know? So, like, I, that's that's a large portion of what this story is about, is, again, he's, he's the king of his civilization, and he his decisions either lead his people to, you know, victory or ruin, and, uh, you know, he has to deal with this world of primitives, essentially, that are constantly trying to take their technology or take yep. their resources. Or destroy them. Or destroy them just because they fear them, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, he, I, I think, I want to say that that was always kind of an underlying, uh element of the Inhumans as a whole, like, uh, threats from the outside world, mm -hmm. but uh, Paul Jenkins really does modernize that aspect in in this miniseries, in Inhumans. Yeah, this, this series ran 12 issues. It tells a fully self-contained and satisfying story with a beginning and a conclusion. One of the things that really stands out uh, is the fact that Jenkins writes with a very uh, emotive quality. He tells his story by... Each issue essentially focuses on a different character, spotlights a different character, and he tells a story where you could read one issue and get a pretty satisfying tale out of it, but when you read them all together, you can clearly see a progression of the overall plot and what Black Bolt's plan is, because his plan isn't spelled out to the reader, but I think if you read it a couple times, um, you can all pick things up. There. The clues are there, yeah. and there's, but on the surface, there's just this level of, of mystery as to what is Black Bolt doing? Why is he doing what he's doing? Why doesn't, he, he clearly has the power to destroy these armies yeah. that are shooting tank shells at his, 
at his city, uh, there there's a scene where all he really does he flies over to that to that army and confronts the general who's commanding the tanks to shell Atalan. He the tank uh, one of the tanks shoots at Black Bolt while he's flying at them, and he just catches the shell in his in his fist, and then he lands and stands in front of the general and crushes that shell into dust and just kind of glowers at him. The general spits in his face. Pretty disrespectful thing to do to somebody who can, you know... To a king. Yeah, <coughs> to anybody. To anybody. And Black Bolt ends up just flying away after that. He doesn't say or do anything else. Yeah. Again, Not, that theme of yeah. just the most self-controlled man in the world. Right. And, but his allies are questioning him, thinking... Why did you do that? How could you allow this pitiful human to spit in your face? You should have destroyed him. Mm. What are we doing? And they just don't know. Yeah. But uh, that's just an example of, of uh, something that Jenkins did with the character to kind of elevate him from the typical ranks of the mindless superhero fisticuffs that yeah. were all too common. Yeah, if you read uh, the series, each issue uh, just has this emotive quality. There's, there's, there are a few issues that really stood out. Um, I don't know. Were, were there any highlights from the series that stood out to you in terms of like how well executed they were? Uh, I mean, the big thing that always gets to me is the big revelation at the end. Like, I don't want to give it away. Just because, you know, in case any of the listeners want to check it out, I'd, I'd like it to be fresh. But just in terms of <clears throat> the, like you said, all the clues are there throughout this book. And you're just reading it as, you know, kind of, there's a slow kind of build up to what what the ultimate end of this story is. And the whole time, I think for a lot of it, as the reader, you're kind of, confounded by his actions as well yeah. like in the same way that the royal family is looking at black bolt and just wondering what are his actions why is he you know he has all this power but he's coming off so weak to yeah. tanks and you know men with guns and whatever um but when you get to the final payoff of the story it's it's pretty glorious it's yeah. it's it's uh it's it's impressive once you. It's essentially once stepping back from a portrait as a whole and just realizing that this is what they were building up to mm-hmm. from the very start. I, I thought that was pretty masterful, quite honestly. Yeah, definitely, and I like that whole <coughs> idea of, of how we, the readers, like the royal family, aren't privy to, to Black Bolt's uh, deepest inner thoughts. Yeah, and there there's this one issue um, in the story. That focuses on Lockjaw, Lockjaw, you know, the giant dog who teleports uh, the Inhumans wherever they want to go. Really cool character, but the story uh, in that particular issue is told from Lockjaw's point of view, and he's basically just walking around the city trying to find food, uh, trying to find somebody to feed him, trying to find somebody to play with. He wants to play fetch with his chew toy. And everybody's concerned about what's going on outside of their walls. You know, they're under siege by humanity. And they got bigger things to be concerned about than to play with their dog. And then 
at the very end of the of the story, uh, Lockjaw sees Black Bolt in his throne room. He's just standing alone, staring out his window. There's no one else there. Lockjaw walks up behind Black Bolt, and then Black Bolt turns around and looks at the dog, and he just basically comes to his knees and gives that dog a big hug. And you see it in the way that Jay Lee illustrates it, where this is a guy who, he's just alone, man. He yeah. is alone, but... And that, he is the head that wears the crown. Yeah, dude. and in that moment, he had, I guess that was the friend that he needed at that moment. And yeah. it's just really simple, understated moments like that that are that just stick with you. I think the, the artwork was excellent. I mean, Jay Lee, for a long time, was one of my favorite artists. And yeah. It, it was because of this comic. Yeah. He was a guy who came up from the 90s. Um, doing a lot of stuff for Image, a lot of stuff that was really heavy uh, on the inks and kind of that whole aesthetic. Yeah. But I, even then, he, he did kind of have his own style. But I think by the time he, he drew Inhumans, he had matured and progressed yeah. enough to yeah. really become <clears throat> Jay Lee. You know, yeah. nobody, nobody out there draws sad superheroes as well <laughs> as Jay Lee, right? Right, right. Agreed. <clears throat> So moving on, uh, the next criteria that we we're gonna review this by is the originality of it. Do you have any thoughts on uh, what you felt on on how original this was as a concept at the time? Yeah, I think this was this definitely holds up as one of the most original superhero comics that you can find. Obviously, the, the characters themselves. I don't know if you would say that there was anything particularly original about them outside of Black Bolt. Yeah. I mean, they all have cool powers, don't get me wrong, but yeah. that's not really what I'm, I'm looking at when, I'm, when I think about original characters, but it's more about how are they developed, because yeah. a lot of these characters, no one ever really developed them. They never had... Yeah, they were just kind of... A chance to shine. Yeah. Yeah, they were just kind of background characters or supporting characters in Fantastic Four comics. Exactly. But, but, uh... What Jenkins and Lee did, um, he gave they gave everybody a chance to shine. They gave everybody a moment to grow, and they helped uh, tell us. They used these specific characters to tell yeah. a story that wouldn't have worked with any other set of characters. Yeah, because I think one of the one of the testaments to a good superhero comic is if you cannot take those characters and replace them with another set of characters and tell the same story. Because for all the comparisons between the Inhumans and the X-Men, if you were to take the X-Men and put them into this story, that would not work. It, work. it wouldn't work. Yeah. Black Bolt is the hinge upon which this yeah. story turns. I was going to say that um, it, it kind of goes back to, or uh, the way that I view its originality, um, it kind of goes back to what I was saying I was talking, discussing craft, but it, it's Jenkins' infusion of politics into this pre-existing society. Like, in a lot of ways, this is kind of a corny comparison in, in retrospect, but uh, it really, it, it kind of feels like Jenkins took the Inhumans and kind of made it, for the better lack of a phrase, Game of thrones before <laughs> Game of Thrones, you know? By involving a lot of, you know, politics, 
again, with this society dealing with, uh, you know, a horde of invaders in the outside world, but also the turmoil within the, the, mm-hmm. the ruling system of Maximus, their family. Maximus yeah. attempts a coup d'etat. Yeah, Maximus a, a, attempts a coup d'etat. But in addition to that, it's, you know, the the people that are supposed to be following the king, yeah. their uncertainty in his leadership, you know, uh, it's it was different for me to see Jenkins putting uh, just these elements into the Inhumans. Yeah, yeah. And I think another thing that stands out in terms of originality is how much they played up the the human aspects of this yeah. comic that's based on the Inhumans. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that has always stuck with me from the first time I read it and. Even to this day, when I read it, I kind of get shivers. Is there's this one issue that starts off with a little flashback to to World War Two and little little uh, vignette about Winston Churchill and how during the war uh, the Allies had cracked uh, the Ultra Code and they figured out they could figure out where Germany was was going to bomb uh, England and at one point uh, Churchill. I think this is apocryphal, so I'm not sure if it's like legitimate, true history. But right. but there's a story about how how Churchill knew that Germany was going to bomb Coventry, and he had a choice to either evacuate the city and save those lives, or he could go about his business in London uh, the way he always did, and those people would burn. But Germany wouldn't know that the Allies had the code and cracked their communications, and it. W- you know that's a heavy, unimaginable choice, and I don't know how how uh, how a man can can deal with making decisions like that. But the the comic touched on that idea, and basically there was a line that said, uh, "The eyes are a window to the soul," and there was a picture or Jay Lee drew Churchill going about his business, and he's smiling, given the V for Victory symbol. And then the panel, the next panel, kind of zooms in on his eyes, and the text is something like, "Eyes are a window to the soul," and in his eyes, the pain was all too real. And that whole idea of of using a historical figure to illustrate uh, the inner turmoil within Black Bolt was really creative stuff. <coughs> it was something that I think added a sense of of gravitas to the entire yeah series. it anchors it to, yeah it anchors it to reality yeah exactly, exactly and I think that's one of the things that makes this work of fantasy uh, so rich because it is anchored in it they anchored it in historical events and yeah and acknowledge it gives you emotional context yeah like they they're they're willing to acknowledge that you know Black Bolt isn't wholly unique in this way. Yeah. He's not the only person in history who's ever had to make hard choices, yeah. but he's the focus yeah. of this story right now. It ups the emotional stakes for a Absolutely. leader, you know? I mean, yeah. it's it's kind of, again, it goes back to kind of what I was saying in Craft, uh, which was, like, up to this point, like, the Inhumans were always just this utopian society, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, again, as far as I can tell, it always felt like their leadership was, you know, Flawless, you know, yeah. just all of the conflicts that they were involved in, the 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 royal family was always right, and they would 
dispatch whatever the problem was and things would just remain go back to normal and they'd just be you know this they'd go back to being an advanced society yeah but this was a, the the way Paul Jenkins wrote it really infused it with just real emotion and it really made you feel the conflict of leadership yeah 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 that's something that I don't think we really really seen too much in, in comics because comics superhero comics tend to not really focus on those kinds of decisions that that leaders make you know yeah. a lot of it is just who do we punch this week yeah and even the stories the series that focus that do focus on team leaders whether it's cap or cyclops um they're not making decisions that necessarily affect more than the direct people around them. Yeah. Yeah. They're not messing in the affairs of geopolitics and the fate of their nation. Yeah, I, I could not put that better. Um, how do you feel about the impact of this book? We mentioned earlier that this was, uh, this was a book that was rolled out as a part of the new initiative for the Marvel Nightline. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, oh, a way to reinvigorate the Marvel Universe through these particular titles. Um, what do you think of the impact? How, how impactful do you think it was? There's a couple of things that I think stand out when I think of the impact of this comic. Uh, first of all, um, just going from the smaller scale first, I would say that this comic helped put Jay Lee on the map. I mean, he was already, people already knew who he was, but this was the one where it was like, oh, dude, he can really he can draw. He do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not just some, some guy who draws for image and draws in that sort of style, but this guy's a real artist. Yeah. You know, he draws really detailed, intricate lines. His his attention to textures and, and storytelling, body language. Yeah. It's impressive yeah and his his real the realism the, yeah, yeah the realism it's all there You're like this guy's a fully formed complete package and yeah. he ended up uh like i said earlier i was kind of saying it tongue-in-cheek but he's really good at drawing sad superheroes yeah and and uh they did a, another comic after this together uh jenkins and lee did called the sentry yeah and then after that jay lee ended up doing uh a bunch of like lesser known comics, but probably the one that stands out the most, or the one that he had the longest run on, would probably be the Dark Tower series, right? Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Stephen King book. I yeah. mean, that was kind of a big deal. The comic book adaptation of yeah, the Dark Tower. That was yeah. kind of a big deal. And by the time he had started drawing that, his work had evolved even more, bec had become even more uh, minimalist, but still very realistic. Yeah. And he's also known for drawing a lot of covers. Some of his Batman covers are just amazing. Yeah, yeah. In terms of what this book, uh, what the book itself did, um, obviously, first thing would be it helped launch Marvel Knights. Yeah, and that was a big thing that I'm pretty sure there's a way to draw a direct line between Marvel Knights and Marvel eventually clawing itself out of mm -hmm. just not necessarily bankruptcy, but, you know, their stagnation, their yeah. creative stagnation in that time period in yeah. the 90s. Uh, without, without Marvel Knights, uh, 
we might not have had Joe Quesada as yeah. editor in chief. Yeah. You know, so Marvel Knights was a real major imprint that was launched. It wasn't just some sort of cheap pop up that was here today, gone tomorrow. It lasted for about fifteen years and had a good impact on, on Marvel comics. It produced a lot of really good comics. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um I wrote this question now. So you mentioned earlier that Inhumans came out mm-hmm. as uh, it, it came out along with four other titles. Uh, it was thing, one of four. One of four, yeah. 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 Um, and the thing that I felt that needed to be asked was, do you think this was? Oh, keep in mind, I'm sure there was one contemporary. It was definitely better than. But do you think this Inhuman that Inhumans was as popular as its other contemporaries that came out at that time? Um, keep in mind that so the other books that came out along with it were Daredevil by Kevin Smith, which was kind of a big deal because they were you know he's from movies. He's from movies, and uh, he was drawn by Joe Quesada. And he was drawn by Joe Quesada. You had Black Panther, by which Priest. was by Priest and uh, Tixier. Tixiera, Mark Tixiera. Tixiera. And you had The Punisher by Pat Lee. That was a pretty bad iteration of The Punisher. That was probably... That, no, that, was, that the, was definitely the worst comic that was the Yeah, that <laughs> was the miniseries where, for some reason, they decided it would be a good idea to make The Punisher a literal avenging angel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... He had wings and magical, mystical guns or something. Yeah. With unlimited bullets. Yeah. But, okay, that aside, just to get back on topic. So, they came out with these four books that were supposed to reinvigorate these four titles. They were creator-driven. Creator-driven. So, do you think commercially, or not even commercially, but among uh, comic book fans, do you think Inhumans was as popular as its contemporaries? Uh... You know that's a that's a tough question without being able to look at sales charts from that era. Yeah. Uh, intuitively, I want to say that the most popular of them all was Daredevil because yeah. it was Kevin Smith, it was Joe Quesada. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. it was a really big deal. Um, I do think that Inhumans is the one that probably aged the best. It's either that or Black Panther by Priest. Yeah. But. Uh, the interesting thing with Inhumans is that I don't think we really got to see the full impact of it, or not necessarily impact, but the full influence of it until the past few years. And I think that's because of what happened with uh, the movies, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. Marvel Studios <clears throat> didn't have access to the X-Men, so they looked for the next best thing, the Inhumans. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's... That's a question of, you know, whether, like, I'm just going to be contrarian a little bit, but mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, it sort of feels like that's more of a question of whether circumstances put the Inhumans in a position to be more prominent, mm-hmm. or whether it was actually his work, so. Right. Uh, I'd probably say that was circumstances. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. what I was yeah. getting at, was it feels like it was more a business uh, decision more than it was creative. Totally. Yeah. <sighs> but, but uh, I guess if your question is which one of those four is uh, what the best, basically, or not, what? not like, because uh, I feel like it's worth mentioning that yeah, this came out 
like we we regarded pretty highly yeah. to put it on this list. But yeah. you keep in mind that there were other things that came out with it. Mm-hmm. Even, and it's worth noting that even though this might not have been all these years later, like it's hard for me to say whether your average comic fan still even remembers this. Yeah, you know, because uh, I think as far as follow-ups to this series, the only one I can really think of was that time when Sean Kelly McKeever did his. <laughs> he did a Young Inhumans, right? Which yeah. took some of the minor characters from this series yeah. and he gave them their own series yeah. and that lasted maybe 12 issues i don't think anybody bought that either yeah um so yeah but but then again going back to those original four okay punisher i don't even think that did well when it came out it didn't i think that was an automatic flop yeah yeah so we don't even have to think about that yeah and daredevil was obviously the most successful one it had yeah. Big name writer and a big name artist. Yeah. And out of all those characters, Daredevil is probably the one that had the most uh, recognition. recognition yeah. Right. So between Inhumans and Black Panther, yeah. The interesting thing is that both of those have kind of resurfaced to the yeah. forefront in yeah. the past few years. And I think it is because of the movies, it's because of yeah. circumstance. But I would say those two are the ones that have aged the best, those are the two yeah. that are the cream of the crop of that whole early Marvel Knights era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, I felt it was important to mention, or to at least, again, give context, in the sense that this was, a, like, although we regarded pretty highly, like, it it's, might not be as well-known as... Yeah, because a lot of the stuff that they're doing with Inhumans now, I don't think it's... I can't really see how... It's yeah, influenced by I this. don't see the connection. Yeah, you know, other than they're kings. Yeah, dealing I mean, with king stuff. The the stuff that they're doing right now in Marvel with the Inhumans, you could very well replace the Inhumans with the X Men, and like it would. Yeah, you could basically tell the same story. Yeah, it wouldn't really affect much. Yeah, I mean it. It doesn't. It certainly doesn't have the emotional depth. Of, no way. Yeah. So. What do you think of this book's ability to withstand the test of time? I'm going to be rereading this until I die, man. Yeah? Yeah. No, I, I agreed. Like, it's already, like, what? What did you say? 20? 19 years. 19, it's already 19, 19 years old. Yep. And, you know, it's still an excellent read. Yeah. You know, and it's, again, the fact that this is a self-contained... 12-issue maxi-series. Mm-hmm. Would that be a maxi-series? Yeah. Yeah. It It's a story that isn't bogged down by continuity. It's, there aren't, like, too many, if any, references to, you know, whatever was going on in comics at the time. It's really just their own world. Yeah. And it's totally something that you can read, just like any other fantasy classic. Yeah. Say. It stands on its own, and the best is that, the best thing about it is that you can read it in between two covers, you know? It, it stands on its own. You don't need to know anything else. Yeah. You it's, don't need to go back and figure out 20, 30, 40 years of Inhumans history in yeah. order to understand this book. You just, you can pick it up and you can see that it's about a king who's trying to keep his civilization from uh, falling under, from invading forces. Yeah, and I would go so far as to say you could open up this book Start reading at 
any random issue, and you would still be entertained. You would be you would be able to enjoy and appreciate it for what it is because the human emotion that that Jenkins and Lee were able to capture and convey to the reader, that's what's going to make this stand the test of time. Yeah. Now, who knows what they're going to do with the Inhumans in the future? I mean, obviously, they tried making a TV series that didn't look too hot. Yeah. I mean, I don't... I, I haven't really been paying attention, so I don't know if it was successful or not, but I know that I wasn't interested in watching yeah. it. And it looked pretty bad. Yeah. But... Regardless of that, and however Marvel's current Inhumans comics turn out, whatever they end up doing to the characters, you know, we're always going to have this. Yeah. We're always going to have the Marvel Knights Inhumans by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. Absolutely. I, I've We've had this conversation a lot where we just talk about, you know, the various comic properties that are in existence and just, you know, how there are things where we wish that I just wish there was one good story for them, or I just wish there was, you know, a good run uh, by a writer that I, you know, enjoy or respect. And for the Inhumans, this is that story, you mm -hmm. know? Like, if there wasn't any other Inhuman story, and this was all I got, I'd be happy with it. Yeah. It's just a great story. Exactly. Moving on? Yeah, let's move on. Number 15 on our list of the top 25 Marvel comics of all time is Alias by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos. First published in 2001, this was another book that came out of an imprint of Marvel. This time this was the Marvel Max imprint, which was Marvel's mature readers line. Uh, so it contains explicit content. In fact, the very first word of the very first panel of the very first page of the very first issue has the F word. And I think that was the first time that the F word appeared in a Marvel comic. <laughs> uh, so do you have a brief synopsis of uh, what Alias is about? How would you describe it, Drew? Alias is about Jessica Jones, who was a former superhero ended up deciding that that life wasn't for her, and she ends up becoming a private investigator instead. Yep. private investigator who specializes in superhuman types of cases. Yeah. That's a, that's a really fair synopsis. I think it's, it's a book that starts out sort of episodic, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, once you, by the time you get to the end of it, uh, like any good mystery, like any good uh, noir story, you know, your character is flawed and your character has some sort of baggage that they're mm -hmm. carrying with them. So, uh, again, like I said, the story starts off, you know, her dealing uh, with Jessica Jones being this private detective dealing with, uh, you know, case, uh, dealing with things on a case-by-case -case basis. But as the story progresses, you come to learn, you come to learn more about her and you come to see just how she ended up being as damaged as she was, and yeah, how she eventually resolves her issues. Yeah, this this whole series was 28 issues, and it's an in-depth character study. I would say that the the plots are all really interesting, but the main focus is the character. It's it's all about how Jessica reacts and is affected by the things that she experiences, the things that she encounters, the people that she encounters. And you see how 
over the course of these 28 issues how how she's changed you know yeah. a lot of a lot of stories a lot of superhero comics tend to be about maintaining a certain status quo yeah and characters have adventures they punch different bad guys in the face spider-man has to constantly make sure that no one finds out his secret identity mm -hmm. and he constantly has to make sure that everyone thinks he's just a regular normal teenager living in a regular normal teenage life right there's a lot of uh repetition to a lot of these uh superhero stories but with with alias the focus was on the character and how the character grows and yeah. it's something that you don't necessarily see that often in, in superhero comics. I mean, there's always that whole idea of the illusion of change, but I think by the end of Alias, you see that this is a character that has actually grown from the first issue that you've read to yeah. the very end of her story. She's grown. Yeah. So, what do you think of the craft of the book? Tell me about the art and about Brian Michael Bendis's uh, execution of this character. Yeah. So Bendis, we already talked a little bit about Bendis when we uh, discussed Ultimate Spider-Man in a previous episode. But Bendis, he's uh, someone who is known, I think, I would say that a lot of people who followed his early, early career. Yeah, who, who followed his early career, would they would call him uh, one of those guys who was really good at, at dialogue. Yeah. Uh, because he wrote in that sort of da David Mamet style where everybody spoke in these kind of a rapid-fire staccato. Really pithy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, some. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Sometimes they would have speeches and, and long, yeah. long monologues and whatnot. But there was a, he's a very dialogue-heavy sort of writer, a guy who, who uses a lot of dialogue. Yeah. Has, he tries to imitate uh, the idiosyncrasies of yeah. real speech. There we go. Where people say things like, like or um. Yeah. They repeat themselves. Uh, and it just sounds, it's supposed to mimic uh, normal speech patterns. Yeah. But for me, I've never really looked at that as something that I thought of, thought of as his strength. I always thought that his greatest strength was his ability to build up drama and affect his characters. To me, that's what he excels at. Right. And I, that's why... That's why I really love Ultimate Spider-Man. That's why I really love Alias is because of how he crafted yeah. character study yeah. by building up drama in her in her life, in yeah. her in her backstory, and then in all the things that she experiences as you read the story. And as for the art, Michael Gatos, he he's great, man. Yeah. He draws in a realistic style. His sense of design is, is great. Interesting like thing, yeah, 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 he uses texture in his art. One of the things that always stood out to me was his use of, of negative space as well. Like, there's a lot of pages and, and panels where, you know, you think that you could another artist would probably just fill something in, yeah. but he he's not afraid to not have to cover the entire page with his art. You know, yeah. you can have some negative space in there to set tone and affect your mood. I think that's something that a lot of people don't use very much. I think it would be behoove people to read through uh, Michael Gatos' stuff and, and see how he lays out a page to basically, you know, have a conversation, you know. He's, yeah. We're looking at a... I just opened up our, our uh, comic to a random page, and it's a conversation between Jessica and Luke Cage. 
And they're just having a normal conversation standing in a hallway. But the way that Gatos draws it, you can read this, you know, it's it's yeah. not it's there's not a flow to yeah, it. Yeah, there's a flow to it. Even if the the word balloons weren't there, you could kind of get the gist of the emotions and the attitudes between yeah. the the characters and that's something that is necessary when you're doing a Brian Michael Bendis comic. Yeah. If you can't draw a conversation, two people yeah. talking, then yeah, that's not good because Bendis then, has a lot of conversations. Yeah, yeah exactly. Then looking at it's really subtle, but again, like you said, if since he's such a dialogue-heavy writer, if you can't co- effectively communicate visually to people having a conversation, you'd be looking at this and you'd just be like, how does this make any sense? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, yeah. Because um, a lot of times I've seen Bendis comics, like I, I think of, um, he, did, he did a story arc for Ultimate X-Men, that David Finch drew. Yeah. And there were scenes where where uh, Wolverine was talking to, to somebody, and it's just the two of them in a room. And, yeah, David Finch, sure, he can draw Superman punching each other. He can draw Wolverine slicing up a Sentinel or yeah. Storm shooting lightning. Yeah. That's something, but he can't draw two people sitting down in a, in a room talking. talking civilized. Yeah. And it's it's pivotal to the type of story that uh, Brian Michael Bendis is telling. It, like it's not it's not your typical uh, Marvel comic in the sense that it's all hinged around the like superheroics of it. Mm-hmm. Like there there has to be a build. Like you said, there's got to be a build up to it, right? So yeah. all the drama is in the build up and in these moments in between these conversations that get. To they basically fill in the the character details yeah. essentially. Yeah, and an, another thing that I really like about Michael Gatos's art is how he designed Jessica. Like the way he designed her, he didn't draw her to be some crazy bombshell, right? Yeah. You know, like that's probably the stereotypical thing where where artists always got to draw beautiful women and like supermodels. Super like supermodels, they've got a certain you know figure, but. The way that Gatos draws Jessica, he draws her like a real woman. You know, she's not necessarily a knockout or anything, but yeah. she looks, she looks like a real person, and, and that's what the she's story calls for. Yeah, uh, and she looks, she looks fine, and and uh, the way that he illustrates her range of emotions and her, the way he draws her outfits, and, yeah. and she she just looks like a real person. You know, yeah. and I think that's something that all too often uh, artists tend to draw these fantasy or idealized versions of, of women and in a story like this that can really take yeah. you out of it because then you're there's that narrative dissonance where yeah. you're looking at something that's supposed this story's supposed to be about a real person with she's got real emotional baggage. emotional baggage. Yeah. Right? And and it it would be kind of hard to accept if it was just drawn like any other superhero comic. Yeah, yeah. Like if she was, you know, like Wonder Woman or something like that yeah. and just exuded that level of confidence when she's clearly someone who's just been through a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, again, it doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, like in terms of craft, I, well, I guess this would, 
I guess this moves more towards the second criteria. Like, I, I feel mm-hmm. like the a lot of the comments that I have about the craft are really more about its originality. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that strikes me about this comic is that it's a... I mentioned earlier, brief in brief, that it was a noir story, but, I mean, that's the thing that really sticks out to me, is that uh, when you look at Marvel's catalog of comics or at, at the time, I don't think you really saw too many noir-type mysteries, you know? So, essentially, this is kind of Brian Michael Bendis getting to do the thing that put him on the map, at least in the indie world, and doing it in the Marvel universe, you yeah. know? So it was... So, I, I forget if we mentioned, but Brian Michael Mendes came from indie comics, and a lot of his... He did a lot of crime comics. Yeah, a lot of his original comics were... Goldfish, Jinx, yeah. Torso. Yeah. Even Powers, his, uh, it was a police procedural set in a superhero universe of his yeah. own creation. Uh, so, he always had that association with, yeah. with crime, and that sort of the dark, seedy underbelly of society. Yeah, yeah. And for him to, for Marvel Comics to, you know, take a chance on him and to give him, you know, the ability to tell this kind of a story, that's pretty original, I'd say. Yeah, um, he created a brand new character who has withstood the test of time yeah. thus far. Yeah. You know, she, she's cut from her own cloth. There, I don't think there's really, yeah. I can't think of any other Marvel or DC character for that matter yeah. who's like Jessica. Yeah. She's, she's just unique, yeah. and the fact that Bendis created her uh, and was able to get 28 issues out that's, of his own creation. It's impressive. Yeah, that's an accomplishment for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, oh, I had a question in my brain, but I forget what it was. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, oh, that's what I was going to say, actually. That was, it was a comment, not a question. But, mm-hmm. like, I, the thing that I would, that, if I was to recommend this to people, I would say, don't necessarily, you shouldn't necessarily view it as a superhero comic. Just read it, if you're a fan of, like, mystery, it's, you know, it, or crime. It, it's, it's a really good, well-done crime comic, and, like, it just happens to involve super-powered people. Yeah, it's, you know? uh... Yeah, it. One of the things that they succeeded in doing was getting that noir sort of feeling. Without, yeah. Without really, without really marketing themselves as such. You know how. Yeah. You know how yeah. a few years ago there was that whole wave of, of noir comics. Yeah. When crime comics got pretty popular and everybody was trying to do crime and noir comics. Spider Man noir, Luke Cage noir. Yeah, they had a whole line of comics yeah. with noir. Uh, based titles. This was, but Alias takes the idea of noir, not necessarily trying to, you know, give you a that black and white art or that yeah. certain type of art, but it, it tells a story where I think it gets to the heart of noir, which is yeah. probably the, exactly. the idea of it's not superficially someone, noir. Exactly, it's not yeah. superficially noir. Noir, it's it's noir in the sense yeah. that you have good people who are doing bad things for yeah. maybe the, yeah. the wrong or the right reasons. Yeah. Things like that. Fractured people and, and they're doing things that are just, uh, you know, beyond this typical constraints of society. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, in, in in that note, I, the the other thing that I just wanted to mention, like the the flip side of that is, this is also really and like I I, I think it's a credit to its originality is, um, in spite of it, in addition to the fact that it's, you know, one way to look at it is it's this crime comic that just happens to have superheroes. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis actually does a great job of playing with Marvel history in this comic, you know? Like, mm -hmm. here's a character that he just created uh, for the Marvel Universe, and she explicitly inhabits the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. The Marvel Universe. So, what do you, how do you, how do you tell a story about this superhero that's not, that hasn't been around for a while, while, well, you put her into, um, uh, he found a way to in, uh, inject her into different moments or uh, different points in time that actually coincide with Marvel, the the actual Marvel universe. I mean, not in a way that it's like brazen or anything where you notice it, but you know, as a comic fan, you can read it and you can appreciate that it's as well. It's stuff that makes sense. It's like, yeah. oh, when Jessica was a teenager, she went to the same high school as Peter, Peter Parker. Parker. <laughs> she didn't know he was Spider Man, but yeah. you know, she it. You know, and it's it's a well done uh, way to in, like introduce his creator own character. Yeah, you know, so like I think you can appreciate it as uh, you can appreciate a Alias as a fan of crime comics, but you can also appreciate it as a fan of comics, a fan of Marvel comics. Yeah, yeah. I'm a fan of Marvel. Totally. Comics. What do you think of the impact? How how impactful was Alias to you? I would say that the impact of Alias has increased over time for obvious reasons with yeah. the Netflix show. Yeah. Um, obviously, we didn't call that Alias because I think there was some other show called Alias back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but the character Jessica Jones. She has her own show. Yeah. Thirteen episodes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's impressive. I mean, who would have imagined when this comic came out that one day this character would have her own TV show? Yeah. Spider-Man have his own live-action TV show <laughs> with Wolverine? Well, okay, so uh, the question that was on the tip of my brain uh, in regards to its impact is, this is more of a industry question, but mm -hmm. do, you, do you think Alias had any impact on that wave of crime comics that followed it? Or, like, even, if not, like, you know, stuff like Criminal or, uh, you know, Loser or whatever... Um, there, there was also a wave of sort of indie crime writers mm -hmm. that made their way into comics following Bendis. You know, again, guys like Brubaker... Made their Rebecca. way into Marvel comics. Not necessarily made their way into comics. There's a distinction. Because they were already in comics. Okay, fair enough. So what did you think? Did you think that Alias had a, uh, an impact on I think, those guys? Did I think, you think they had an impact on just crime comics... Uh, making, making it kind of big as a whole, as a genre, subgenre. Uh huh. So, what I would say is, I don't necessarily think that Alias had a big impact on the whole crime comics movement. Yeah. But I will say that Bendis's success with Alias, as well as Daredevil, which is another crime-heavy superhero comic. Yeah. I would say Bendis's success with these two comics paved the way for other 
similar like-minded writers to have success yeah. in at Marvel yeah. and, and DC. You know, think about writers like Ed Brubaker, who you mentioned, uh, Greg Rucka, Brian Azzarello. Yeah. You know, those are guys, they already had established careers true. Uh, true. at this point. But the fact that Bendis was able to come in and have success, I think that gave Marvel and DC con- more confidence that they could let their creators create yeah. rather than just try and hamper them and force them to write a certain way. Yeah. So I think that in that regard, Alias had a big impact and a big influence. Okay. Okay, that's fair. What do you think about that? Uh, I think what you had to say about his success on the comic kind of being the trailblazer for them to essentially take a chance on more crime comics. I, I think there's a truth to that, mm-hmm. you know? Like, uh, I can't say definitively that we don't have criminal because of Alias, yeah. but an argument can definitely be made for it. Like, yeah. I, 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 can, okay. I can be convinced to believe it, mm-hmm. you know? So I also think that uh, this comic had an in- impact on Marvel in terms of giving them... Uh, the leeway or the wherewithal or confidence even to publish Mature Readers titles. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of their first. It was the first Max yeah. comic. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. They, they, didn't nece- they don't necessarily publish a whole ton of yeah. Mature Readers comics. I mean... But they took a chance. Yeah, I mean, yeah. basically, uh-huh. uh, for those who are listening, if, if you haven't picked up a Max comic, they're basically just like rated R movies. Yeah, you know, so they're, they're swearing. Yeah. Swearing. Uh, a little bit of nudity. Yeah, but uh, it's nothing. It's when we say mature readers, we're not talking about pornography or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on Alias's ability to withstand the test of time? I think it's gonna withstand the test of time, man. It's already what about sixteen, seventeen years old. Yeah, and it doesn't really feel like it's dated. I mean. Are there some scenes when you think, hey, she could have just, uh, you know, used her smartphone to Google <laughs> something? Yeah. Okay, fine. But, I mean, yeah. if, if that's if that's somebody's idea of being dated, then I don't it's, know what to say. Yeah. It's you know? pretty minor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's from the early 2000s. Um, the writing doesn't feel dated. Like I said earlier that I don't necessarily think Bendis' strength is dialogue, dialogue but... Yeah. I don't think his dialogue is bad. Yeah. His dialogue is engaging and pretty witty at times. Yeah. Sometimes sometimes the patterns... I think the criticism that I could make is that sometimes his, his writing patterns, uh, the rhythmic pattern of them is almost too predictable. And yeah. sometimes, sometimes he writes characters and they don't have their own differentiated voices. They all kind of sound like Bendis. Yeah. If you will, like you, you read, yeah. you open up a Bendis comic without knowing, without seeing his name on the title, and you just start reading it, and you yeah. can just be like, "Oh yeah, this is a Bendis comic." I do feel like a lot of his uh, exchanges, or uh, you know, his the the way that he writes his characters when they're having discussions, a lot of the times it's a lot of these like really quick witty exchanges between two people. Yeah, you know, patter. Yeah, exactly. And patter, exactly. Yeah, definitely. But in terms of uh, withstanding the test of time, it, this is. 28 issues of perfection. I mean, yeah. it's stuff that you can read in one or two sittings 
yeah. it's it's a basically a novel length character study. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's something that is about uh, human human uh, or personal character growth and development, and that's something that's universal. You know, you may not necessarily have the same background or or personality or experiences as the main character in the story, but being able to, if you like to read stories in general, this is a story that does a great job of carrying you through her, her journey. journey. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yep. Yeah. All right. Do you have any thoughts about uh, the lasting, uh, just the ability for this story to withstand the test of time? Um, like, I would agree with you, uh, with what you were saying earlier in that, uh, in what you were saying in an impact, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that, if anything, what we're seeing is more recently now, in, in current year or more recent years, that it's, it's become more prominent mm -hmm. as a work. So I do think that that's just a testament to its ability to be something that withstands the test of time. Yeah. You know, I, I... I think, yeah, the the artwork is just timeless in and yeah. of itself. You can just kind of look at it, and it it tells its story, and the craft of it is is you know immaculate. Exactly, you know. So I I I think this is something that you know you can read years down the road, and you can just pick up and yeah, like you were saying earlier, maybe there's gonna be some part of it where. It's like, oh, that doesn't make sense. She should have gotten an Uber. She could have <laughs> used her cell phone or whatever. Like, I, I just feel like the, that's all just kind of, it's it's really minor. You know, like, uh, the, the sentiment behind the book is understood. Mm -hmm. It's something that you can follow. It's, it's her growth from suffering a tragedy, multiple tragedies even, yeah. and just growing to be a person that overcomes it like how's that not a story that anyone can follow exactly you know well said man well said yeah. i did also want to go back a bit and, and discuss a little bit more of uh, the impact of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of the comic because uh jessica jones is a character now i mean she's not someone that had these 28 issues and then was quickly forgotten but yeah she became a regular character in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Bendis eventually ended up writing The Avengers, and she was a big part of that book, too. Did he utilize her? <laughs> he used her. <laughs> <laughs> Let me wear my... Get my pipe out. <laughs> you gotta adjust your monocle, dude. I think it's falling off the chain. But uh, not only did... Bendis introduced a major character to the Marvel Universe that is still being used today, but he also brought Luke Cage back into prominence. Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't get the Luke Cage Netflix show. We don't get Luke Cage as a part of, you know, multiple teams in the yeah. Marvel Universe. Like, Go ahead. I mean, we're at a point where Luke Cage went from just kind of being this obscure caricature of a exploitation character, and you know, with uh, Brian Michael Bendis writing him, 
uh, he, he gave him uh, a spotlight, and we're, we're at a point where the comics now have him... You've got writers that aren't Bendis that are using him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a mainstay in the Marvel Universe now. Yeah. So, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah, because everybody knows that Bendis had a man crush on Luke Cage. Yep. He uh, used him in the first issue of Alias, and and then uh, right around the early years of Max, Brian Azzarello and Richard Corbin did their Cage miniseries, and Bendis loved how they played with Cage in that one, and he, he took that version of Cage and mainstreamed him, basically. Yeah. He used him in Alias, but, but Bendis was using Cage in all his other books, too. He yeah. was in Daredevil, and... He became the leader of the uh, of the new Avengers. I yeah, mean, come on. I mean, that's I mean, a meteoric rise. It is like he went from you know a dude beating up drug dealers to fight Thanos. Yeah, I mean, come <laughs> on, man. <laughs> He's got his own Netflix show and all that. Yeah, I mean, that that's a character that I don't know if all of that would have happened if Bendis didn't have a man crush. If he on didn't Luke believe Cage. in Luke Cage, yeah, like we. We wouldn't have a universe where Luke Cage is, you know, kind of a top-tier Marvel character. Yeah. yeah. Now we can actually say that people who don't read comics, they... Some of them yeah, actually... To it. Yeah, they yeah. know who Luke Cage is. They, yeah. they even know who Jessica Jones is. Yeah. Because of the show. Yeah. So, Brian Michael Bendis, he did his job. Like, he left a mark on, yeah. the, on the Marvel Universe. A big one. Really big mark. Yeah. Alright. Anything else? Uh, I think that about wraps it up for today. Uh, you guys have been listening to Between the Gutters. Thanks for listening, and just want to let you know that you can always reach out to us if you have any uh, questions or comments or maybe something that you want to email to us, and we can even discuss it on our show. But you can reach us at Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com. All one word. All one word. No no spaces, no underscores. No spaces, you heathen. <laughs> Between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Alright, fellas and ladies, thanks we for out. listening. <laughs> I don't know how to start. We don't know how to end this. I don't know how to end them. <laughs> <laughs>